All right, welcome back to another episode of Credo Catholic. I am excited for today's interview. Again, Dr. Larry Chap is joining us, and Dr. Chap was on at the very end of November to discuss the Theodore McCarrick scandal and some of the wider problems that we see in the church. He's an insightful, incisive thinker, uh, and perhaps an even better writer. Always love write, uh, reading the stuff that he writes on his blog, gaudiumetspest22.com. Dr. Chap, welcome back to the show. Hey, uh, thank you. It's great to be back, and uh, thanks for the, the blog plug there. Absolutely, and I'm going to link the blog, of course, in the show notes, and I'm going to link specifically to the article that we are discussing today in which you, Dr. Chap, break down the hermeneutic of continuity or the idea of interpreting Vatican II within a hermeneutic of continuity. And you right. ask the a very timely question, has the hermeneutic of continuity failed? And right. I think we might benefit from sort of framing this a little bit. So I'd like to kind of dive into the idea of the hermeneutic of continuity and then get your summary or review of what we see as the sort of predominant uh, JP2 and Benedict the Sixteenth narrative of conciliar reception, how the the Second Vatican Council has been received by the Church and interpreted by the Church. So that would, I think, be a good place to start. Let's just go there. What is a hermeneutic of continuity? What do we mean by that, or what do people mean by that when we hear them use that phrase with respect to the Second Vatican Council? Well, in a nutshell, to put it really simply, is simply to say that no matter what it is that Vatican II teaches— it must always be read and interpreted in the light of the entirety of the church's tradition. So, I mean, that's just basic Catholicism 101, right? That the uh, indefectibility of the church over time means that what is true in one age can't be false in another. So even though a council can develop doctrine, which the Second Vatican Council did, in the sense of deepening our understanding of older doctrines, applying them to new situations, and we'll come back to that in a second. A council has to always be viewed in the light of the broader tradition. And that's what we mean by, you know, a hermeneutic of continuity, and continuity with the tradition, as opposed to its opposite, a hermeneutic of rupture, which many people after the council advocated for, and, and, you know, in a sense, I could use the language of today and say that many of the more liberal uh, people after the council viewed it as the Great Reset, <laughs> build back better and all that stuff. And it was it was just a total break with the past. It's a, another reformation and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's the difference between the continuity and, and rupture hermeneutics. I would also add, and this is from Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, councils are not called unless there is an issue to be resolved, a new problem, a new dynamic, a new situation. And so Ratzinger sometimes speaks, instead of a hermeneutic of continuity, he speaks instead of a hermeneutic of reform. And what he means by that is every council, because it's dealing with something new, is going to be both in continuity with the past, but there are also going to be small ruptures with, with with the past, where something may in the past have not been phrased completely properly, or a truth of the faith had been obscured, or something like that. So there is always a bit of a change with every single council that has to be taken into consideration, and that is certainly true of the Second Vatican Council. Now, of course, when Benedict the Sixteenth said a hermeneutic reform, uh, as you said, that's it's not it's not agreeing with those who talk about a hermeneutic of rupture, but it's rather saying no. that there, there, it's not that there's nothing new to consider with this council. This council is, as you already said, Dr. Chab, developing something, but it's right. doing so to reform what needs to be reformed. So if we could review this a little bit, 
St. John the 23rd convenes the Second Vatican Council, right? And then we have uh, John Paul the first right after him, or I'm sorry, Paul the sixth right after him. Right. And, and then John Paul the first very briefly before he died. And then John Paul the second, Benedict the 16th, and then Francis. And the traditional narrative, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, the traditional narrative is that there was a lot of confusion in the immediate aftermath of the Second Vatican Council and a lot of debate about how to interpret this. And there were some who, like you were saying, said, were saying this is the great reset, our opportunity to build back better. And others who were saying this this really has to be interpreted in light of the church's sacred tradition and unchanging teaching. And in light of the indefectibility of the church, that means that we need to interpret it with this hermeneutic of continuity. And it seems as if, and again, this is the sort of the, the traditional narrative, it seems as if the John Paul II, Benedict XVI papacies sort of cemented that hermeneutic of continuity idea. Is that an accurate way of describing the history up to the Francis pontificate? I think that's a, a very accurate portrayal of what happened. And uh, I, I think that it, the, the problems associated with the council's reception in the crazy season, and I'm 62 years old. I, I lived through the 60s and 70s. 60s is a very young dude, and 70s, though, in my teen years and so on. So I remember the craziness. And a lot of people today, a lot of the radical traditionalists want to blame Vatican II for what came after. And they say, well, you know, it's fruit of the poisonous tree, and, and it's a it's post-hoc ergo propter hoc, after the fact, therefore, because of the fact. But I think that's very naive, and I think the fact of the matter is, is that the council, the the, the conciliar uh, sort of implementation after the council, had problems that were caused by multifocal sources, not a single cause. The fact is, if the council was guilty of anything, it was guilty of a certain naivete about the cultural tsunami that was about to sweep over the church. I think very few people could have predicted. The, 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 the cultural tsunami of the 1960s, especially if you were a bishop, right, who was, say, born in the 1920s, you know, and uh, framed in, in the, you know, in the war years and so on. It was very hard for those guys to get their mind around the, the cultural revolution that was just around the corner. And I think that had a lot more to do with the craziness we saw after the council than the council itself. Yeah, that makes sense. And I want to sort of scratch scratch a little bit more deeply on your thesis there, because in your article, you talk about how we're entering this third phase of conciliar reception. So we already talked about, and you, you use the phrase silly season, that's from George Weigel, but that's sort of the, Weigel, yeah, yeah that, that's just sort of, um, I guess, you know, 20, maybe 15 years after Vatican II, when it's just a free for all, no one really knows how to interpret it. There's not super strong magisterial leadership, I think, on how to do that. Or maybe it's just chaos and it's it's the spirit of the 60s and 70s, like you said. And then we have yeah. the second phase, which is really John Paul II and Benedict, 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 it's always a tongue twister for me when I'm talking fast <laughs> and getting excited, Benedict the 16th. And, and You're that, a church nerd. You're a church nerd. I know. You're getting all excited about it. I know, this. I know. I love it. And so the second phase, though, is those popes, not maybe not slamming the door and and probably not making it airtight, but you know gently closing the door against this hermeneutic of rupture idea, right? And then we come to Pope Francis and what you say in the article. I'm quoting here. Uh, Some now argue that what we are witnessing is a third phase of conciliar reception, wherein many aspects of the council, which are which were downplayed or ignored by the two previous popes, are now being retrieved for the first time. 
A new narrative is emerging that views the papacies of John Paul and Benedict as actually being reactionary betrayals of the council's true spirit, betrayals which we must now reject as post-conciliar hiccups or blips on the ecclesiastical radar. They were just the last gurgling gasps of the moribund conservative church, we are told, and now that we have a truly progressive pope, we can finally begin the process of implementing the council. And so you talk about this sort of narrative that like now this is the third phase, but then you then you scratch a little bit deeper and you you advance this thesis that I find compelling, which is, no, this isn't a new phase at all. This is a recurrence of the first phase. Uh, we see that in some of Pope Francis's actions in which he tends towards a more progressive vision of the church, but but sort sort of tends to be disappointed with the uh, the sort of um, the postmodernists in the church. Uh, and then you also talk about the allyship in some ways between those who advance this hermeneutic of rupture on the progressive side and those who advance a hermeneutic of rupture on the sort of the the, the, the trad side, the traditional side, in which traditional Catholics, well, maybe that's a bad phrase. I'll say trads because every, every Catholic should be traditional in the sense that we hold sacred tradition. So let's say trads who say, the yeah, the, the Archbishop Viganos that you're talking about, right? Who say the Second Vatican Council is a major problem because precisely it is a rupture with previous traditions. So there is this sort of unnatural, or maybe it's natural, allyship between the progressives who say, yes, there's a rupture, and the trads who say, yes, there's a rupture. Yes. Uh, the, the, the thing about, yeah, the, uh, the so-called third phase, I, I think, is a bit of propaganda from Pope Francis's biggest acolytes and supporters. Uh, not that maybe Pope Francis himself thinks this way. I have no idea really what he thinks. He's a really hard guy to figure out what he really thinks. But there is that narrative that's out there. It's like, okay, we had, we had the wacky liberals after the council. Then we had the reactionary conservatives that were reacting against the wacky liberals. Now we've got a real progressive who truly understands the council, who will now implement it in a more... Uh, progressive way, but without going crazy. But I, I think that's just wrong. I, I just, I mean, if you look at Pope Francis's age, if you look at what he says, if you look at some of the theologians that he recommends, it's very, very clear to me that this is a man whose mind is stuck in 1970. You know, and so there's nothing new about this. For example, a few years back, uh, somebody asked him a question in an interview about moral theology, and so he's he held up Bernard Herring as a moral theologian that he was a he said was a great model for how we should do moral theology. Well, Bernard Herring was you know the uh, the roaring lion of liberal moral theology in the 1960s and into the 70s. So that told me a lot about where Pope Francis's mind was. So. Yeah, I, I don't think there's anything new about this. I think it's the re-empowering of an old idea that never went away. And this this speaks to, in some ways, the failure of the hermeneutic of continuity in the sense that neither. Uh, well, we're going to get to that later. So let me get let me get to the uh, thing about the traditionalists. Yeah. So what what you end up with then are now people who are, uh, liberals who are saying. Well, the council documents don't really agree with us, but the council established a dynamic that a spirit, if you will, that we have to follow. So what was important about the council was the event of the council and not what the council said. So we can utterly reject 
the conciliar documents themselves, but adopt the pedagogy of the council, if you will. It's dynamic. But the traditionalists, while not taking that exact same approach to the spirit of Vatican II and so on, they too reject the documents. Uh, the liberals reject the documents as being still hopelessly conservative, and the traditionalists, of course, reject the documents for being closeted, modernistic, claptrap. Uh, but the bottom line is they both reject the conciliar documents, what the council actually said. They both reject it. And so they both kind of end up in the same place, in a church of their own making. You know, on the topic of this spirit of Vatican II, it was Benedict who said the spirit of Vatican II is its letter, so we can't create this false dichotomy between the you know sort of ethereal spirit of the council and the actual documents. Um, because if you do, you end up with the problem that you just outlined. You end up being able to say, no, we reject the documents because the spirit is wrong. Or you say, we, we, you know, we accept the spirit, but the documents are wrong. And if you have this approach that there is some sort of ethereal spirit of Vatican II that is distinct from the documents, you end up in this really problematic position. Uh, when my mom was in the hospital before she passed away this past summer, um, she was uh, in a Philadelphia hospital. And the hospital chaplain, I'm putting chaplain in air quotes, was uh, a, a woman who, to my knowledge, had no denominational credentials, but who sort of identified as a Unitarian, you know, and, and certainly, yeah. certainly tried to cater to people of all faiths who were in the hospital. And my, my dad, I wasn't there for this conversation, but my dad related to me later. Of course, my dad's not Catholic, but uh, he was talking to her, and somehow the Second Vatican Council came up. And I think it's because she said, you know, I'm a, I'm a child of the council and dad, my dad said something about the second Vatican council. And then, uh, her response was that, yeah, well, the, the, the spirit of the Vatican, uh, the spirit of the second Vatican council is still at work and there's still much work to be done. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this was someone who was wearing like some sort of, you know, amulet necklace or charm or something that was distinctly not Catholic, someone who obviously is not steeped in Catholic theology, but I think had been raised Catholic and then left the church and you know, yeah. is now attending an Episcopal church. Um, and it was just, it was just emblematic to me of what a disaster, not that the council has been, but the sort of post conciliar era has been that no one really knows what to think about this. Or at the very least, you have these divergent views of it that cannot reconcile what they see as the spirit and the letter of the council. Yeah, the problem is that the council got immediately politicized and uh, was used as a tool by those who wanted radical change in the church. I don't even say reform. What, what the liberals after the council wanted, even though they used the word, wasn't reform. What they wanted was a complete break. They wanted the Protestantizing of the Catholic Church, pure and simple. Yeah. It's as simple as that. It boils down to that. Uh, and, and so um, I kind of lost my train of thought here. But, but right after that council, uh, there, there was this, this sense that, okay, there's a revolution in the making. And so we, we have to, in a sense, twist the council to our political agenda regardless of what it says. And the media happily went along. This is what I meant earlier about the cultural tsunami. And Ratzinger mentions this when he talks about, well, there was the Council of the Fathers, but then there was the Council of the Media. And what he meant by that was, and there were many liberal Catholics who were very willing to use the media as an effective tool to further and champion their cause. Because the media were secular. They were liberal. They wanted the Catholic Church to Protestantize. And so they glommed on to every sort of trendy issue that the 
liberals wanted. And that is what created this enormous push for dissent and change in the church and all this politicized talk of the spirit of Vatican II when nobody wanted to pay attention to the actual documents. We have to realize, I think, is there was a great deal of mendacity, of lying here. There was a great deal of conniving manipulation that was very conscious and very deliberate and very well thought out. Uh, and and we were, you know, the church, was, this is what Paul VI meant when he said, the smoke of Satan has entered the church. Right. Yeah, the deception that was involved. And once the tsunami started, there was no any. But something else has to be mentioned, and I mention this a lot. The traditionalists see all of that then, and they say, oh, yeah, see, see, the council was a rupture, and we just need to roll the clock back to what the church was like before the council. Right. We need to have the old Latin mass, which, by the way, I blogged about today on, on liturgy. We need to have the old Latin mass. We need to bring back the oath against modernism like Archbishop Vigano just said we need to bring back, and so on and so forth. But what I don't understand is this, and what the Rad Trads never address is this. If the pre-Vatican II church was so healthy, why did it collapse almost overnight after the council, if you will, lifted the lid on the ecclesiastical libido? Um, It just collapsed like a house of cards. And if it really was so robust and so healthy, why did it do that? Can you say a little bit more about that? What do you mean by the the pre-conciliar church collapsing? Well, I mean— the, and if you will, the fact that, let's take Catholic universities and Catholic colleges, for example. You would have had theology and philosophy departments that were thoroughly orthodox, very scholastic, you know, in their theology and philosophy. You would have had the vast majority of students on campus being active and participating sort of Catholics, and the, the entire curriculum of the school would have been oriented around the Catholic faith. Well, at least, you know, on the surface. But then as soon as the council's over with and you get Ted Hesburgh at Notre Dame and the Lando Lakes Conference, everybody now redefines what Catholic higher education is. And the entire Catholic higher educational edifice collapses overnight as anything meaningfully Catholic, which is why you ended up having to have these these little enclaves like Steubenville, you know, or, or, or Thomas More College and, and places like that. You had to have those sorts of places to sort of retrieve Catholic education because the rest of it had just utterly gone the way of secularity. Then, of course, you saw religious orders with thousands of priests leaving the priesthood, thousands of nuns leaving, you know, the convent uh, and just emptying out. So there was that collapse. Then you also had a collapse in parish life. Uh, almost almost overnight, where people started leaving in droves uh, in, in the 60s and 70s, a, a process which is only accelerated now. You know, it, it's not something that has even really stopped. And so, I mean, there, there, are, there are numerous numerous examples that one could give of this apparent outward edifice of, of rock-solid faith healthy religious orders, healthy priesthood, healthy parishes, healthy schools, that by the time you reach 1970 and 1975, it is very clear they are very sick, and there's something very wrong with them. And and I think what was wrong was that all of that supposed success of the preconciliar church, and there were successes, I don't want to doubt that, it, it was rooted, though, in a very legalistic and a very forensic and a very juridical and a very superficial understanding of the faith. 
All right. So say, for example, no meat on Fridays, which was a mainstay of Catholic identity. So the Second Vatican Council comes along and, and, you know, sets up this apparatus for reforming all that and says, look, okay, we're no longer going to require mandatory no meat on Fridays except during Lent. But we do say that you still need to pick a suitable alternative penance that you should do on Friday to commemorate the death of our Lord. All people heard was, woohoo, we don't we can eat meat on Fridays now. Yeah. How many people actually adopted alternative penances? I ask you that. Well, it's it's For- a good point actually, because I have a you know, I have a friend who's a, a pretty devout Catholic and grew up Catholic, and we had a conversation a year ago and he you know, Sally Sally and I decided two I think two years ago to try to abstain from meat on Fridays because it's a good practice and, and we're young and there's no real good reason why we can't do it. So we try to do that. And I was having a conversation with my friend and he was like, yeah, you know, I, after you told me that last week, I did some research and it turns out I should have been doing at least that or a different penance all along. And I had no idea. So to your point, it's, you know, it gets, it just gets understood as like, yay, no more penance for me on Fridays. Uh, when the reality is, no, that was never the intention or the That desire. was not the intention. It was basically, I mean, it, it, refrain, let me, let me use an example from my life, which is when I was a kid, I always uh, looked forward uh, in Lent on, on meatless Fridays, I look forward to those days because we ate better on those days than the rest of the week because my, my dad would trot us all off to like Red Lobster or whatever and we'd have shrimp. And, nice, and nice. Really, really, really great stuff. And so I was like, woohoo, okay. Which of course completely violates the spirit of, of the penance that, that, you know, the penitential practice <laughs> that's involved. And that's what the council was sort of driving at, right? Uh, it was great that it was a cultural marker of being a Catholic. And so every Friday in parishes, you had fish fries and stuff like that. And you know what? That's great. And that's a loss that we don't have those sorts of things anymore. Uh, The Knights of Columbus became famous for their every Friday fish fries, but it was also very clear that it was no longer a penitential or ascetical practice. It was more of a cultural marker uh, of being Catholic. And so the council wanted to, in a sense, retrieve the true spirit of penance and saying, okay, maybe you should choose a different penance than eating lobster at Red Lobster on Friday, <laughs> you know? And it just became, this is my mean though, about the legalistic frame of mind. All anybody heard was, oh, oh, great. I can eat meat on Fridays now. Right. And the, all the other stuff is just forgotten. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. I, I think, you know, there's a couple things that you've, um, you've driven that in there, but I think one of them is, is this whole idea behind interpreting the council in a way that ignores the text and really ignores the authorship, the intent of the text, and instead just wants to interpret it in the context of the the you know the cultural environment environment in which it came about. Um, and I think that's a really devastating thing. The second thing, to your point about the post conciliar church and how it just collapsed, you know, Sally and I watched Spotlight a couple months ago, the movie about the. Oh yeah, the, the yeah. Boston, um, the Boston Globe's it. yeah investigation of the sex abuse crisis. Fantastic movie, absolutely a harrowing film for Catholics, but I think an important one for for adult Catholics to watch just to understand how how you know in, sort of infected the church has been and is, of course, with the smoke of Satan. I think yeah. trads often find this to be like a a radical thesis to advance and a controversial or provocative one to say that the smoke of Satan has infected the church. I see the smoke of Satan as having infected the church since Judas Iscariot. 
And so it's it's not right. it shouldn't be particularly surprising to us. And that doesn't mean that just because the smoke of Satan infected the church and really sowed confusion, the author of lies sowed confusion in the post conciliary era, does not it does not logically follow that we need to throw out the documents. And then the third thing that I that I would say in response to what you just said on this point about the church collapsing, um, it's also true. Going back to my spotlight point, that most of those priests or maybe not most, a lot of those priests were trained in the pre-conciliar era. They went to seminary in that era, and they were still bad guys who did unspeakably hideous things. No, that, that's uh, absolutely true. Maybe, you know, it, it is perhaps true that some of these things have been going on in the church, sexual abuse, for a very long time. Uh, even way back, you know, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, but we just never heard about it, just right. like we never heard about child abuse in families. Absolutely. It's just the kind of thing that just got hushed up and swept under the rug. And so now we have um, more light as an antiseptic being thrown on, onto the church, and so we know more about it. But it wouldn't surprise me either that given the sexual revolution of the 60s, 70s, and so on, uh, that that also wasn't a bit of a spark. That also wasn't a bit of a catalyst uh, that opened the door for men who are already sort of sexually dysfunctional and perverted uh, to feel like they had a little more freedom to, you know, to ply their trade, so to speak. Right, right. Yes. So I, I, in other words, I, I disagree a little bit with Pope Benedict Sixteenth and his analysis of the sex abuse crisis because he does seem to tie it rather directly to simply the the cultural revolution of the 60s. Uh, but I think that is a bit uh, a bit wrong in the sense that it ignores the fact that this was a problem before then. But I also do think he is onto something that, that you, I don't think there can be any doubt uh, that the sexual revolution had some impact on priestly celibacy. Oh, I, I completely agree with you. And I think it's interesting that one of the calls of, of Vatican Council, I mean, it had... It had the um the call to holiness emphasizing the call to holiness holiness for the lady yeah. but it also yeah. encouraged the church to be an adequate reader of the signs of the times and i think it's interesting that we emerge from the second vatican council and in many respects the church is if it's at all adroit at reading the signs of the times and i think in most cases it's not it's really really bad at resisting the signs of the times um and so what's often interpreted as the spirit of vatican II is I think nothing more than the spirit of cultural confusion and chaos and degradation that ha that was happening in the post-war era into the 60s and 70s uh, at the same time that the Second Vatican Council was being interpreted and implemented in the church. Well, absolutely. To, and to, to tie what you just said back to your statements about the smoke of Satan, Paul VI was not saying that the smoke of Satan is now uniquely in the church as never before. Right. The Freemasons have taken over. Vigano's right. You know, and, and we're, we're doomed. No, he was basically saying that this has always been with the church, and I and I see this now. You know, at work now in the church. Uh, but if you if you want to see a, a great example then of accommodationism at work, which is what you're talking about here, what they view as the spirit of the council. Uh, it was just sort of raw accommodation with accommodation with the spirit of the age, and I think that's what Paul VI meant when he talked about the smoke of Satan mm -hmm. entering the church. It was the it was the soul of the world entering the church. Look at the recent statement by the head of the German Bishops Conference. 
Have you, have you had a chance to read? I can't think of the guy's name right now. He's the bishop who's the head of the German Bishops Conference, and he's running right now the synodal path that the Germans are on. And even Pope Francis's Vatican has warned them, right. you're on a bad path, which I give Francis you know, credit for. But this bishop just this past week came out and said the church really does need to ordain women as priests. Uh, this is the head of the German Bishops' Conference. We need to ordain women as priests. There's no good reason not to ordain women as priests. We need to bless homosexual unions, you know, in church ceremonies. And, and, and you know, you get the whole, it was the whole secular ball of wax. That, and, he, and he defined himself as a conservative because because I love the church so much, I'm a conservative. Yeah, that's, that's is, definitely the definition. <laughs> yeah, that's the definition of a conservative. I really love this church. So <laughs> even though I'm in favor of gay marriage and women priests and changing the teaching on contraception, and I'm all in favor of divorce and remarriage and intercommunion with Protestants regardless of creedal differences, I'm in favor of all of that. I'm a conservative. But notice something here. There's a very telling line in that bishop's statement. What he said was, we need to make these changes now before the gap between the gospel and our culture grows wider. Isn't that an interesting statement? Yeah, that's remarkable. Said without even the slightest hint of, of, of self-critical awareness of what in the, pardon my French, hell, he is saying. He's essentially saying Germany's moved in this direction, so the church better move in Germany's direction too. And the fact that there might be other cultures who don't want to move in that direction, he's fine with. Just make sure that the Germans can do what we want to do. You know, so that has a highlight of exactly what you're talking about with regard to the spirit of the Vatican Council was really nothing more than uh, a reading of the signs of the times, but not a resisting of the signs of the times. So uh, the bishop in Germany today, he knows how to read the signs of the times. He just doesn't want to resist. Yeah, in fact, he, he agrees with them. Wow, yeah, I had not seen that statement from the that bishop, uh, and I forget his name as well, but uh, I've been following the synodal path a little bit, and it seems like nothing more to me than a recipe for schism in the near future. Um, oh, yeah. I, I hope that's... And what? It absolutely is, because there is absolutely no way that Rome can approve these changes without being in a complete rupture with every papacy and every council, right. you know, of the, of the 2000 year history of the church, not even Pope Francis will go there. And I want to say this. And so, yeah, it's a recipe for schism. If the Germans want to go down that path, I will say this too, with regard to going back to the hermeneutic of continuity versus rupture, Francis might be an old fashioned 1960s, seventies sort of liberal. He's got those proclivities. He absolutely has those proclivities. And in that sense, I think he's a bit naive uh, and, and, and sort of lost in that era. Nevertheless, he is not a heretic. And he, and he is, for the most part, in continuity with the tradition. Because I often say to people who think he's some big-time, huge liberal who's going to destroy the church, if you think that way, look at the things he has not granted right. to the liberal. He's now been Pope seven or eight years. What is it now? Uh, going on eight years. Yep. He, he has not ended mandatory celibacy for priests, even after the Amazon Synod took place and gave him an open door to do so. You mean the he, you mean uh, the uh, the German Bishop Synod masquerading? Yeah, as the, the German synod. Bishop Synod, <laughs> as I point out in one of my blogs, it right. was just a it was a synod run by German Gnostics, you know, and and it showed and they didn't really give a hoot about the the you know the Amazon or any of that stuff. So th they didn't. 
He hasn't ended mandatory priestly celibacy. He hasn't okayed women priests. Heck, he hasn't even you know, okayed women deacons. He has not altered the teaching on contraception. He did tweak just a little bit the teaching on divorce and remarriage, but it's not like he just gave a big green light and said, okay, that teaching has changed now. Um, and, and on and on, I mean, he hasn't changed the teaching on homosexuality or sexual morality or any of that sort of stuff. Uh, and so in reality, his supposed heresy and liberalism is more the product of some of his off-the-cuff, you know, statements on airplanes, you know, who am I to judge and civil unions and this kind of stuff, and not really on the level of his magisterial teaching. The closest he comes to a sort of, uh, a sort of walking a fine line with, with a, a kind of very liberal ocean is Amoris Letizia on the stuff in divorce and remarriage. Right. That's the closest he comes. And it's, and it's uh, an ambiguous footnote, probably intentionally so. Oh, yeah. That's, we, we can't forget that he's a Jesuit, which means he's quite clever at yeah. these things. <laughs> what, he can't, what he dare not do through papal fiat, he will do through a sort of percolation from below. Papal footnote. Like, yeah, exactly, which which is a wink and a nod to sort of what's already been going on on the ground. You know, it's kind of like communion in the hand. When Rome finally, when John Paul was sort of hoodwinked and okay, communion in the hand, what it was was essentially Rome giving a wink and a nod to a practice that had already been taking place, especially in the United States, for a very long time. Uh, and everybody knows that there are parishes all over the world where priests in the internal forum, you know, tell married couples, civilly remarried stuff, oh, you know, look, you've been remarried 10 years, you got three kids, just come to communion again, do a penance, and you're good. That has been, and I think this was Pope Francis sort of giving a nod to that pastoral reality more than it was a wholesale changing of, of the teaching itself. No, I disagree with that nod. But it's, it's, it's people, Catholic, uh, this is way off topic, but one of the things I want to say about the Catholics of a more traditionalist bent, like myself, need to be reminded that there are places in the world why, where there are no marriage tribunals in dioceses, and annulments are almost impossible to get. They're, they're like a luxury for rich people. Mm, wow. You know, in, in very, very, very rural, rural and poor countries, uh, it, it getting annulment is not as easy as you know it is in the United States and Europe and those sorts of things. And there's also situations too, where it's very very clear to anybody with two eyes and two ears that a particular couple's marriage uh, is is sacramental, even though they they didn't get an annulment. Uh, I mean, if it's you know it could be sacramental, even though they didn't get an annulment. Because their fir the first marriage or whatever was clearly involved, but there, there's you know all the witnesses are dead. The first partner is dead. Uh, there's no way to work up a dossier. So people tend to think you know annulments are this sort of easy thing, and they're and they're not. And so I think what Pope Francis was doing was sort of granting the pastoral reality that priests are sometimes up against it. In, in these sometimes very sticky marital situations. So he was not denying the traditional teaching, but kind of opening the door to a bit to its, uh, to people sort of ignoring it yeah, on yeah. the ground. Yeah, that's a good point. And I don't like the footnote any more than you do. And I think that it's wrong. Um, yeah, because it's ambiguous. Right, but, but it, it's a great point that you make. I mean, Pope Francis is the first Pope from the global South. Right. And we tend to forget that, but I think it's salient 
for at least two reasons here. I mean, the first is, like you said, there are places around the world where this is a pastoral reality that that pastors have to make decisions on, and Pope Francis is probably thinking of them. I, I think everything that Pope Francis says and does, we tend to interpret in the modern Western world as like, oh my goodness, this is about us. This is about us right here and now and our church conference, et cetera. And I think that's not really foremost on Francis's mind, which I would say is probably a good thing. I mean, even if he goes sort of in bad directions with it sometimes. Um, but the second thing is, as you mentioned, he's an old school liberal, if if he's anything, you know, to the extent that we can sort of categorize and, and try yeah. to understand him. He's an old school liberal who, like you said, is sort of disappointed by today's provocateurs who are trying to advance secular critical theory. And he's more in the mold of, um, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. It's, it's, is it Eve Congar? Is that how you pronounce it? Eve Congar. Yeah. 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 He, this is Belgium in 1958. Right. Well, I think, I think really it's like, this is sort of Argentina in the nineties, right? Like, you know, in Argentina, they're not having discussions about whether or not to teach critical gender and racial theory in their government. Right. The issues there are about economic equality, about price gouging, about endemic corruption, about deforestation, environmental concerns and environmental ecology. So in that sense, you know, Pope Francis is a pope of the global south and his concerns are about the global south, which I mean, most of those concerns are not our own. Right. Like a, right. a progressive in Africa or in most of South America is not going to be advancing the same types of policies that a progressive in the United States is advancing today. I agree, you know, and, and this is an important point. However, <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is, if that is what he's on about, if that is what he's on about, then be clear about it. Yeah. In other words, play off of, I mean, John Paul II make no bones about the fact that he was Polish and that his opposition to the Soviet Union communism grew out of that experience yeah. and that he had something to say to the entire world about human rights and human dignity and democracy and all that because of his experience in Poland. Well, if this is what Francis really means, then he should lay it out. He should talk about it. And he had a perfect opportunity to do so with the Amazon Synod to mm-hmm. say, let's really address let's really address the issues of the global south here. And here's how I see what those issues are. But he doesn't. He wallows around in the mud of ambiguity and and obscurity. Uh, and so I, I don't want to go on a whole Pope Francis rant here. Uh, I'm not a rad trad. I don't think he's a heretic. I don't think he's a Freemason stooge. Uh, <laughs> you know, seriously, uh, he is the Pope, validly elected. Uh, I don't think he's the greatest Pope of my lifetime by any stretch. In fact, I think he's the worst post of Pope in my lifetime. But but he has strong points as well. Some of the stuff he writes is absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, and but but I mean, I also I, I appreciate your comments there because you know not not everything that he says can or should be defended, and we have to understand it and where it's coming from. I mean, this is last week on this feed. I released an episode with Joe Heschmeyer, who wrote a book called Pope Peter, um, and he recounts how for him. The breaking point at which he realized, I need to study this doctrine, the, the distinctive doctrine of the, of the papacy more carefully because what Pope Francis is saying about Zika and contraception being justified in the case of avoiding Zika virus is not appropriate and not in any way squarable with, with Catholic moral teaching. So your point's well taken. I want to talk about this rad trad issue just a little bit because this is something that yeah. has been bothering me for months now, actually probably years now, but it's, it's been especially sharp in the past few months. You talk about in your article... You have a sort of, a sort of um, a brief aside where you ascribe or describe a uh, rad trad as wearing a MAGA hat. 
And it is, it's, it's kind of a sidebar. I think you're just, you're probably doing it to be provocative. It's, that's not the thrust of your article. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I'm sure you have thoughts on this and I'd love to hear them. I have been very vocal about my uh, belief that uh, Donald Trump is a, a terrible person and uh, he should not receive any votes for the office of the presidency. I've also been vocal about how I was not going to vote and did not vote for the Democratic candidate um, because of their uh, the, the platform's position on life and the defense of human life, especially in utero. Um, so, you know, I've just rejected both, but I've been really concerned to see a significant number of rad trads. And by rad trads, I mean, you know, SSPX, I mean, uh, FSSP, people who, you know, proclaim Latin mass uber alles, um, or some, um, you know, some people even in your standard Novus Ordo parish who, have those leanings and listen to those people and, and sort of feed themselves with that. Well, media. you know, even if they're not SSPX or go to the fraternity of St. Peter's, there's a lot of just standard parish Catholics that run off to the traditional Latin mass. Right. In, you know, in, in whatever church is holding that in their diocese. So yeah, there's that crowd. And, and, and you're right about this, this comment wearing a MAGA hat because so many of them are, you know, diehard Trump supporters flying the make America great again flags oh, and, and wearing the hats. So, I mean, what do you make of that? What, what is that? And where do we go from you know, here? I, I talk about this again. I just posted a new blog posted. It's on the liturgy on the Eucharist and all that kind of stuff. But towards the end, I get into the rad trad sort of, uh, you know, emphasis upon the traditional liturgy as the only valid one. And the Novus Ordo is just garbage a free, you know, Bognini was a Freemason and it was all, and I'm not making this up, but I keep talking about Freemasons. They really think that Freemasons created the Novus Ordo. Yeah. And that's why, you know, it might be valid, but it's, it's wacky and stupid. So I talk about this and then what, what you begin to see, and my comment about MAGA hats in, a, in that, the blog you're talking about was intended to be cheeky and snarky, but now it's actually literally true. Because now in the wake of all of this nonsense, and I agree with you, Trump's an evil man. Uh, he's a bad man. In the wake of all this nonsense fomented by Trump over the past you know, few months, it's, they have all doubled down on Trump. They've all come out of the woodwork. They are all now unabashed conspiracy theory, tinfoil hat people, uh, otherwise intelligent people running around talking about how the storming of the Capitol was an anti-fall flash, false flag operation. Even though the guy who was sitting in Nancy Pelosi's office was clearly a Trump supporter. The woman who was killed, unfortunately, God bless her soul, who was you know in the Capitol building was a Trump supporter. There might have been Antifa types and so on who were there sort of for the ride, glomming on for the ride, you know, opportunistic. But the vast, overwhelming majority of the people that stormed the Capitol were Trump supporters, and they were incited by Trump, not necessarily to do that specifically, but in general. So in other words, and now I see all of these rad tread friends of mine on Facebook and other social media coming out of the woodwork to defend Trump, come hell or high water. I think what it is, is it shows quite clearly that their support for, and I say this in my blog today, and it might come across as judgmental, but their support for the traditional Latin mass has nothing to do with liturgy. Mm. It is every, and there are people out there who love the old Latin mass and it is about the liturgy. People like Peter, the scholar, Peter Kwasniewski and stuff. Great. I love that. But these rad trad types for them, they don't really care about the liturgy. It's part of an ideological package. Yeah. It is part of their desire to retrieve a lost ecclesiastical 
and cultural regime that actually that they've idealized and romanticized, but actually never was. Yeah. And so they think that's why they also hate all modern theology, including people like Ratzinger and De Lubach mm-hmm. and John Paul and von Balthasar. Ooh, the demon von Balthasar. Yeah. All right. They reject all. They just want to go back to the scholastics, the neo-scholastics and St. Thomas. They want to go back to the old Latin mass. They want to go back to the oath against modernism. They want to go back to an index of forbidden books and all of that kind of stuff. And it's all because they buy into a certain ideological package. Donald Trump represented for them the last great hope of some kind of some kind of conservative Americanist Christendom. You know, I really, I, I don't quite understand how they could be that naive yeah. about the man or about the prospects of a revived sort of American Christendom, if you want to call it that, which was, by the way, always Protestant and not Catholic insofar as America was a Christian nation at one time. So I, I think that explains it. I'm very harsh about it. I think they're exposed. I think the rad trads are exposed as, as uh, Catholics who are more concerned with, with a certain ideological agenda for the church and for the culture than they are with the health of the church, with real theology, with real sacraments and real people. Yeah, that's well said. Uh, and that, that helps me understand it a little bit more. But like you, I'm still partially dumbfounded. And, you know, to be frank, I'm disappointed in some of my friends who have gone this path. And I just think, you know, you... I thought you, I thought you would know better. And it's, you know, it's either a malicious thing. And I think in the case of most of my friends, at least I hope not, you know, it's, it's, I don't think that's the case. I think it's more a, you know, they've sort of been suckered in. It's an ignorance thing. And, um, you know, one thing that this past, um, this past year has really showed me is that I need to reevaluate everything I think about the way that knowledge is transferred, the way that propaganda is consumed. And I think that there are people who just get, get suckered into believing ridiculous things that do not comport with reality in the least. And it's really sad to see that happen with people in the church. And it's especially sad to recognize that that is happening because there are other people in the church who are leading them astray. You know, it's the, it's the wolves in sheep's clothing who are saying, yes, Donald Trump is in fact the, the the last best hope for the Catholic church in America. Like, give me, give me a break. Oh yeah. It's, it's absurd. It's complete. Plus because Trump, they can't see that Trump is such a charlatan, a snake oil salesman, a grifter. Uh, Numerous people in his administration who have quit said that behind their backs, he makes fun of Christians. And he's, he's, he's a grifter, but to go back to, to, to the rad trads. And, and it's one of the reasons why I did defend Pope Francis's uh, sort of orthodox credentials to an, to an extent. I think what's different now is a, a lot of Catholics who were merely sort of conservative, even very conservative, as long as John Paul or Benedict were Pope, they felt like the center was holding. They felt like, even though there were certain things that maybe they thought even John Paul and Benedict were a little squishy on, they trusted those two Popes as pillars of orthodoxy. Rome was holding firm, yeah. and the center held, and that gave them a measure of something to sort of hang their hat on. With the advent of Pope Francis, and to go along then with the spreading of propaganda and so forth, his miscues and the things that he says are dangerous because he doesn't completely understand how that gets magnified right. in the in the interwebs and the blogs by the Taylor Marshalls and the Mike Vores and so on and so forth. That just gets amplified by the veganos of the world in social media. 
And what it has done is to destabilize the center in the eyes of people that were just very conservative. And so now Rome hasn't held, and they look at American politics and realize that the cultural left has gone insane. You know, uh, men can get pregnant, you know, and, you know and, and so on and so forth in the whole gender dysphoria thing. They, they see everything just flying apart. Yeah. Not just the culture, but the church as well. So they do two things. They flock to people that they think are going to have the authority to change things, something that they can hang their head. So Trump comes across, the very authoritarianism of Trump that you and I might be fearful of, they liked. Mm -hmm. They saw it as that draining the swamp thing, which he never did. He is a swamp creature himself. You don't drain a swamp by hiring a swamp creature. All right. But then the other thing is that is what has now driven them into a radicalized view of the church as well. Rome has not held firm. Francis is a heretic. We can't even hang our hat on Rome anymore. Therefore, fruit of the poisonous tree. Vat, we're going to go back to Vatican II. Yeah, it that, was that's wrong. where it started. Every, that's, that's where the smoke yeah. of Satan first came in. <laughs> that's right. Everything <laughs> since then has just been wrong, wrong, wrong. Yeah. John Paul and Benedict were sort of okay, but even they didn't really change that much or stop this nonsense. Francis is here now. I mean, is this not the whole point of Archbishop Vigano's letter after letter after letter? Yeah, no, that's exactly I what mean, it is. I mean, it, everything you're saying. Yes. It's yeah. a false church, a parallel church, right. a church of Freemason conspiracy. Uh, and Francis is the head. He says literally Francis is the head of a false church. Mm. All right, I mean, so, what, what is that but seat of vacantism, right? It's well, you know, I don't know which blog. I wrote several blogs uh, on Vigano, and and uh, a great theologian who teaches, I believe, at the seminary in Detroit, uh, Robert Festigi. Are you familiar with Robert Festigi? I am. Haven't read much of his work, but I'm familiar with him. I haven't either, but he just came out with a great article in the blog uh, uh, where Peter is, which I have some issues with, but nevertheless, it, he had a great and, and the article was: Is Archbishop Vigano in schism? Mm. And it was basically allowing Vigano's own words to indict him. And and what Festigi points out is you cannot say these things and then call yourself an Orthodox Catholic. Yeah. You can't say the Pope is a heretic who leads a false church and then deny that you're a sede vacantist or deny that you're not in schism because you are, whether you want to realize it or not. And all of these rad trad types have now glommed onto Vigano as their hero as well. Trump, Vigano, Taylor Marshall, anybody that will basically be the enemy of their enemy. Yeah, it's, it's really sad. Um, this has been a, a wide-ranging conversation, and we should probably end it just for the sake of time, Dr. Chap. But uh, I want to ask you, just to return to the, the original topic at hand, the, the topic of your blog article, has the hermeneutic of continuity failed? And you have an interesting yes and no answer to this. So can you talk me through that? So returning to the topic of the hermeneutic of continuity, has that way of interpreting the Second Vatican Council ultimately failed? It has failed. The answer to that is yes, in this sense that everything we've talked about for the past hour is living proof of the fact that uh, the reception of the council is still flawed. Yeah, it, it, You know, the church is still reeling under the weight of false understandings of the council as a council of rupture. We're still not resisting the signs of the times. So in that sense, John Paul and Benedict, despite their best efforts, did not move the ecclesiastical needle that far. And in that sense, their attempt at the continuity failed. But that's just simply in, in, in a sort of empirical sense of where we are. 
But in the broader sense, the hermeneutic of continuity has not failed, uh, simply because the papacies of John Paul and Benedict did lay out a strong theological foundation for continuity that Pope Francis, quite frankly, doesn't have the theological chops to, to, to roll back. There is no way that the theological achievement of, of Benedict and John Paul can ever be removed from the church. And their interpretation of the council stands, and it will always stand. Furthermore, uh, it is a bit of hysteria to simply see the church as nothing more than rupture, rupture everywhere. There are signs of hope all over the place, there too. Are, yeah. you know, we talk about the rad trads, we talk about the liberals, but there are millions and millions and millions of utterly sane Catholics who are living the vision, the proper vision of the Second Vatican Council as we speak. All kinds of lay organizations and movements and so on and so forth. So there is life in the tree still. Yeah, I love that. And we talked about that a little bit back in November when we discussed the McCarrick fallout. And there are plenty of reasons to be optimistic about the church. I mean, even here in America, where some of the modernist impulses in the church are at their most severe and worst, uh, there, are, there are tons of young, um, young Catholics, young theologians who are doing good work and firmly committed to the magisterial teaching of the church. And, and I, for one, am, am super excited about that. It, going back to your point about the yes and no, you know, I read your blog post, obviously, and and when I came away from that, one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, how to answer this question, has the hermeneutic of continuity failed? And rather than a yes, no, I came away from your article thinking, no, it has not, but it also hasn't succeeded yet. Because God's God's time is, God's time horizon is so much longer than our own. And we want to look at the papacies of JP2 and Benedict the 16th and say, oh, they got it. They, they firmly interpreted it in the way it should be and laid down the gauntlet for the rest of the church. And that's the course on which we find ourselves now, period, dot. But that's simply not the way the church well, has ever operated. And so, you know, I think we can we can have to say that it has not yet succeeded because we're still battling the same battle. But like you said, the the ecclesial and theological framework that they laid down, I think will will endure. It just might take longer than we would like. I should have had you write that part of my blog post because that's a much better way of putting it than a simple yes, no, because I think that's a much better way of saying it. No, it has not failed. It just hasn't completely succeeded. Right. Yeah, which yeah. is really what I was trying to say. No, You know, and also, I know we're over time, but it also has to be said, every count, every major council that actually said something important and did something of importance left chaos in its wake. People need to remember what happened after the Council of Nicaea, the first ecumenical council, yeah. that condemned Arianism and proclaimed the full divinity of Christ, consubstantial with the Father, used a Greek word, homoousios, that had never been used before, was non-scriptural, that all kinds of people condemned and said, oh, this this is a rupture. <laughs> this is a rupture. Right. You know, and it, and it wasn't. It was explaining the Bible, just using a Greek philosophical term. But look at somebody like Athanasius, who defended Nicaea after the council against Arian emperors and Arian bishops. You know, he was persecuted until he died because of that. That council had was not resolved until the next council, which wasn't resolved until the, well, maybe we need a Vatican III, who knows? Right. I, sh I, I wouldn't want it convened under Pope Francis, but we, we need a Vatican III. Yeah, maybe I, under, uh, under Pope uh, Cardinal Sarah. Oh, that would be lovely. <laughs> Well, thank you, Dr. Chat, for your time. Always appreciate speaking with you. I'll be monitoring your blog and staying in touch with you. And 
If there's anything you'd like to discuss in the future, you're, you have an open invitation to return to the show. To my listeners, if you want to get in touch with Dr. Chab or have any questions for me, you can shoot me an email, Zach, Z-A-C, at credocatholic.com, and I would be happy to put you in touch with Dr. Chap. So please do that if you'd like. Dr. Chap, thank you once again for joining Credo Catholic. No problem. Thank you. And to my listeners, until next time, God bless you. Mm-hmm.